some moments here before we really kind of dive into the scriptures and just um, evaluate where our hearts are, where my own heart is, especially. Um, so God has uh, given us so much as a church, and we're just richly blessed in so many amazing ways, and it's, it's humbling to be a part of that. And as I think about Waypoint now, I think about three years of getting to this point, and then Journey Church, which was multiple years prior to that, and it coming together, and then Waypoint, what it's going to be down the road, and what it's going to look like, I just really think that we need to constantly be taking this before the Lord. And so this message in Nehemiah today, actually we're going to be concluding the book of Nehemiah today and looking at a couple of different things. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But I, I just want us to take a posture as a church and to say, okay, Lord, we want to do this thing right. We want to move into the days ahead with a proper heart inclined towards Jesus and not get ourselves into a place where we miss the mission of God. Where we get, where so many churches get established and then that's where they stay. Are we willing to lay everything out and put ourselves humbly before the Lord and say, yes, whatever you want, God, in your ultimate sovereignty and providential will, guide us in that. And so this morning, before we even dive into this message, which is about past and future kingdom-oriented, you know, just gospel-rich stuff that God's handed us. I want us to take that posture. I want me to take that posture of saying, all right, God, we're ready. We're ready to go. We're ready to move. We're ready to keep being, we're ready to be willing to jump on where God's at work. We're ready to adapt. We're ready to do what we need to do, God, to follow you. So that's what we're going to pray as a church this morning before we get going, is that God would keep leading us, that we would have hearts ready and willing. Because we're going to see something in Nehemiah. We're going to see something where the man changes in the book. And as I studied that, red flags were going up in my own heart of caution. So let's pray together. So as a song we just sang, Lord, we repeat again, we as Waypoint Church... Surrender all. All to you, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
We just want to lay it all out and say, Father, lead us. Guide us in the way of wisdom and righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, we want to put our yes out on the table and, and know, Lord, that you will call our church to radical things that may shake us and undo us in some ways. But Lord, we should be undone in your presence as Isaiah was. And so Lord, just as you did with Isaiah, cleanse us now and purify us and reveal to us and remind us of the gospel sacrifice, the good news of Jesus. And help us to humbly and willingly follow you no matter what it takes, no matter what the cost. And so, Lord, I pray for our church as we move forward in the days and the years to come that we would surrender all to the mission of Christ, that we would surrender all to go, that we would surrender all to continue to engage all around us. And that we will be the generation that sees Matthew 24, 14 fulfilled, that in this gospel the kingdom was preached to all nations, then the end will come. God, we want to see your return. Jesus, we want you to come back. And as we pray, like John did in Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. Fill your church. Glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I like to build things, but I've not had a lot of experience with it. So this summer, I built my kids a treehouse of sorts. It doesn't have walls, but it's got a platform and it has rails. The platform piece was very intricate. You know, you get up into this tree and you're up in the air and you're building this thing and, you know, boards are on lag bolts and they'll just like spin out of control and this thing is like doing all kinds of things. You're trying to figure out how to ultimately build this thing so that it will stay in the tree, right? This is an important part of this. I want my children in the tree and I want them safe up there. But I have never built a treehouse before. I bought a book at Lowe's. And I thought, man, I can do this. Wow. I ended up tearing my rotator cuff. You know, board slapping me in the face. All these kinds of things. And when the platform was finally built, and I'd spent an exorbitant amount of funds on this platform... I lost the ability to see the vision of this thing as a treehouse anymore. And so now it's a deck <laughs> up in a tree. And we creatively termed it a tree fort so that my kids would still love it. <laughs> but I realized something when I was done in that there's a lot of pride in me as a father and as a man for building this thing. 
And I'm standing there gazing upon my accomplishment. And my wonderful wife, I love my wife, but she's standing there looking at it and saying, I didn't realize it would be so big. And right in front of our windows, where I would always see it. To which I wisely said, it's only so you can see our kids play in the tree fort. Well, you know, you, when you build something, you're proud of it. You get it become attached to it. And sometimes you can become violent about it, guarding your own honor. Kids, you need to play in this thing every day. Because <laughs> I built it for you. Well, I think this is where we pick up at the end of Nehemiah. We see that Nehemiah has gone through such pains at rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. I mean, he risked his own life coming before the king to ask permission to go. He's provided all of these resources and funds to, to complete it. And you see at the beginning in, in Nehemiah, you see this man humbly praying before God. And I truly believe it was heartfelt as he was there before the Lord, praying for Jerusalem, praying for the people of Israel. But at the end of the book of Nehemiah, we see a different guy. We see the violent Nehemiah. I mean, at one point he rips out somebody's hair. And we see a transition from a man of humility seeking God's kingdom to a man of pride who's concerned more about the walls than he is truly about God's kingdom. And so, if you would turn your Bibles to Nehemiah. Pastor Lawrence told me that I would be concluding Nehemiah. I didn't realize that that meant I was going to have to cover three chapters in one setting. And so I started really digging into this, trying to figure out how I was going to do this. But then I realized that a lot of this section in Nehemiah has got a lot of names in it. And um, Siri's trying to talk to me here. Hold on. So, um, but, and so we're, we're going to kind of glaze over some of that today. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that that's not interesting because I will say this. I learned a long time ago that it's, you know, you read these long lists of names like in chapter 10 that are just so laborious to kind of try to read because they're a different language. But I, I realized something. This is, this is actually really fascinating that these names are in scripture a lot of times. Because it shows you that God cares about individuals. God knows your name. And so I don't want to say it's not important, but for the sake of time, we're going to kind of skip those, kind of, those pieces, and we're going to look more at the end of what happened in Nehemiah's life and what's, what that means for us. What are the implications for the church? So, you know, just to recap, as we've kind of been looking at Nehemiah, we've seen the, that there's a prophetic hope after the exile, and this hope is at an all-time high now that Jerusalem's been rebuilt. And so you read through chapters 10, 11, 12, Nehemiah, there's all these things being established, all these systems and structures that are being developed for the worship of Israel, 
for the sacrificial system, setting up the Levites and the priests and how all that's going to work. They've taken a lot of time to really focus on that and get everything ready. And they have this huge worship service. And they're fulfilling prophecy now. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 25 that the exiles would return. So here they are. They've returned. Things are happening. Isaiah chapter 11, Hosea chapter 3 is saying that there's a future messianic king going to come and establish Jerusalem again. And so here they feel like, man, we've done it. We've established this. We're ready to go. It's It's awesome. Uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, Zechariah chapter 2 are saying that God's presence is going to be in this new temple. And so Zerubbabel leads this first wave of exiles to return and they rebuild the temple. And God's presence is supposed to be there in their minds. This is talking about this in Leviticus chapter 9, 1 Kings chapter 8, that God's presence would be there. But it doesn't happen. Zerubbabel's temple lacks one thing, God's presence. So they also in their minds would have seen this time as a a time when it would signify the the unification of the tribes of Israel and also that the nations would gather together at the temple. This is what the prophets kept talking about. Yet Zerubbabel turns all non-exiled Israelites and everyone else away. If you were in the exile and you returned to Jerusalem, then you worked for this. I mean, man, you were a slave. You deserve this temple. But for those of you who were farming in Israel and never went to the exile, forget it. You don't have a place here. And especially you non-Israelites. You Gentiles? No. Well, Isaiah chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 8 keep talking about and bringing up this idea that God's kingdom is going to include the nations of the world. So Ezra is sent, a second wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem, and he discovers something. The Israelites and the Gentiles had intermarried. And so he enforces this divorce law, which actually Malachi, who's a contemporary prophet at the time, opposes. Ezra enforces, and the elders of Israel enforce this divorce law and throw the nations out and their children. We're going to purify this. We're going to get ready. And so finally, they believe that all of this would fulfill the Genesis 12 promise to Abraham when Zechariah, which is another contemporary prophet. We're going to talk about this in a second, the history of what's going on here. And God's kingdom, Zechariah's talking about God's kingdom, but he says it's not going to have walls. It's going to be a place of worship for all the nations together. So what's going on? I mean, this is like two stories are trying to happen at the same time. Well, when we kind of try to figure out what's going on here, I want us to kind of bring a history lesson in and kind of see this. So the, our English Bibles end with, in the Old Testament, ends with what book? Malachi. Okay? Malachi. Now, this is a Hebrew Bible right here. It is not, the Old Testament does not end with Malachi in the Hebrew Bible. It actually ends in Chronicles. 
First and Second Chronicles are actually one book. So the reason they're divided is because it's one big scroll, and they couldn't they didn't have enough room on, on one scroll, so they divided it. It's First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, but they should be read as one book. That's the end. But prior to that, the book right prior to Chronicles to end the Old Testament is Nehemiah. So, what's that, what does that bring to mind now? So we've got to kind of think through this. What's going on here? So the order of the Bible is important for us to try to grasp what's happening. So let's look at this historically. So the Jewish Bible was called the Tanakh. T-N-K, it was an acronym. The law of the Torah is the T, is the first five books of the Bible. They had a very special, revered status among the Israelites. The Nevi'im, the N, is the prophets, um, which is a little um, confusing because some of its history, books of history, and some of it is, is law and some of it is prophets, but they called it Nevi'im. And then the last part is the Ketuvim, which is the K. And the Ketuvim is a collection of psalms and accepted Jewish scriptures that are kind of poetic. Okay, So in this order, the chief issue that came up among the people compiling this list was where do we fit Chronicles? Because the, the Chronicles, does it properly conclude the Hebrew Bible? Well, Chronicles repeats a lot of the history that we see in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, but there's a lot of differences too. For example, one of them is they never talk about the sins of King David in Chronicles. They only talk about him in a positive light. Well, Chronicles repeats this history, but Chronicles is being written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So someone is chronicling the history of Israel, but it's during this time frame that we're looking at in Nehemiah. Well, there's some other interesting things going on here. During this time after, when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins... There's 400 years where no one hears from God. It's called the 400 years of silence, or it's also called the intertestamental period. So between the two testaments, something's happening. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. But one of the things that happens is there's a lot of war and a lot of conquering states. And at one point, Persia gets conquered by Greeks. And so the New Testament is written in Greek because at this point, it's the Greek Empire. But also the important thing is, is at this point, the Jewish children didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. So there became later a Jewish translation of the Old Testament in Greek so that their children could read the Bible. It's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint has the same order of our English Bibles. So that's kind of the history on that. But here's what's going on. Now, I'm going to try to pull out some characters that are also involved in this. Now, don't worry. All these pieces that I'm throwing out are all going to come together for a big conclusion. So what I'm talking about is who, who's alive and on the stage and speaking into this whole thing? Well, we know Ezra and Nehemiah are, right? So we see this book. Ezra and Nehemiah are supposed to be read as one book as well. All right? One chronicled history. All right? But in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, we see some names, and you can go through those names to try to figure out. But there are some standout names. Um, one of them is Daniel, and the other one is Jeremiah. 
These guys are old now, but they're in the exile and they're returning. Daniel, his, he's pulled out of Jerusalem, Israel, way early on. He was a preteen when he was pulled out. And you can read about that in the book of Daniel, how he and his friends were out. And so this is the same Daniel. And it's also the same Jeremiah, who's the Jeremiah the prophet. And they're both wearing their t-shirts that say, Old Guys Rule, as they walk through there. Y'all seen those t-shirts? I'm getting one of those when I turn 40. I'm going to get an Old Guys Rule t-shirt. All right. So they've lived in Babylon in the exile. Daniel's lived there since he was young. Jeremiah has been there, has been deported to Persia and Babylon during this time. All right. And so this is pretty amazing if you think about it. Because they've got these two guys full of wisdom, full of experience. They know the scriptures, all this kind of stuff. And you do never see them being consulted. Now, they might have been. We don't know. But you never see them being consulted. But I started thinking about it, and this is a speculation. Total speculation. I'm up here going way out on a limb on this. But I started thinking about what was going on. You know, here are these Persian, here's this Babylonian king, this Persian king. Because Babylon was the first kingdom, Persia conquered them, then you got a Persian king. What's going on? And I started thinking, you'll read Daniel, you see that Daniel was taken out and he was put in Nebuchadnezzar's court as a young man, and he stands for God. He makes a stand. And then years later, decades later, we see these kings still remembering the God of Israel. And I don't know this for a fact, but I just wonder if the influence of Daniel making a stand and constantly making the name of Yahweh famous didn't keep the name of God and the issue of God's presence in His temple before the minds of these kings. So you young men, I'm going to challenge you in that. Daniel was 12 when he was taken into Babylon. To make a stand in a culture that was anti everything that he had ever been taught. Then you have Chronicles. This book of history. Last book of Hebrew Bible preceded by Nehemiah. Actually preceded by Ezra and Nehemiah. So when you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, Chronicles... Zechariah and Malachi and also Haggai, these are all contemporaries. So when you're reading those books, it's all happening at the same time. All right? Very important as we think about this. So Chronicles. Chronicles just ends. I mean, when you read the Bible as if Chronicles the end, Chronicles just... I mean, it's like I'm in mid Restorm Restorm like, what just happened? I mean, we just ended. Just, it's just there. And that's how Chronicles ends. It's like this big... So the, the focus of Chronicles is their stories about the past that are trying to provide hope for the future. This is why David's painted in a nice light. They're looking for the Messiah. Where's the Messiah? Where is he? We're ready. We built the walls. We built the temple. We've got everything ready. Where's David? Is he coming back? Where's the messianic David? 
So that's where Chronicles, it talks about this coming Messiah, this future temple. But Chronicles also says it's a city without walls where the presence of God dwells in his ruling king Messiah and is a home to all nations. And that's how the Hebrew Bible ends. Well, Zechariah and Haggai, they're preaching at this point and they're saying to the people, turn back to God. Don't end up like your ancestors. Turn back. Repent. And they're saying, um, Zechariah especially says, all of this rebuilding is going to fail if God's Spirit isn't in it. Then Zechariah says, the Messiah will come though. He will be a shepherd to His people. But they will reject Him. But he says this, a spirit of repentance and a new heart is going to be given by the Messiah so that the rebels will turn back to him. And so then um, Haggai and Zechariah paint this picture again of a new Jerusalem being restored like a garden of Eden that all the nations would come and be healed by the fruit. It's pretty awesome. Malachi, another prophet during this time, this is his message. He's saying the covenant people weren't changed by the exile. It didn't do anything. Their hearts are still hardened. They're still dishonoring the Lord. And in Malachi chapter 4, he says that the Torah and the prophets are a story that are pointing to the future. It's not about right now. It's about something else that's coming. God will send a new Moses, Malachi says, God's going to send a new Moses, which always in the Old Testament is a picture of the Torah. And he's going to send a new Elijah, which is a picture of the prophets, these this Nevi'im writings, these Ketuvim. So Malachi is saying, the whole Old Testament, and he summarizes it in Moses and Elijah, are pointing to a time when God will restore His people and give them a new heart. And this was the future messianic hope that everyone is standing on. It's like standing on a precipice, just waiting. Like it's coming. I'm waiting for it. And this is why Chronicles just ends. Like, because they're like jumping in midair. They're waiting for the Messiah. It's this huge hope. So we get to then. We get to Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah in, in chapter 12, verse 43, this ma- amazing thing. They have this huge worship service. You can look there at 1243. It says this. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard Far away. Many times joy is used in that verse alone. Rejoiced or joy. They're they're so excited. They're so ready. It's like, all right, I have served it up to God. Everything's ready now, God, for the Messiah to come and just land right here and perch among the Israelites. Everything's ready. So they're so excited. They're so happy. And I I think a lot of it's genuine. I don't want to say it's not genuine at all. I think they really, truly thought 
that the Messiah was just going to like walk in because they'd made all these preparations for it. So they're ready. So they have this great day of worship in the temple. Everyone's doing the right thing. All the T's are crossed. All the I's are dotted. Everything's come together. The contributions are there. The tithes are there. The Levites and priests have been ready and purified. It's like the old days with David again. Man, the good old days, like it was way back when. And in chapter 13, there's this great cleansing that they're back to the true bloodline of Israel with no foreign mixture. And they see this as good because they see that as that they're, they're good, they're undefiled, we're pure, man. We are, they didn't, they didn't say this, but we're sin-free, God. Now, we've done it. We've made ourselves perfect. See, now you can take us. It's not going to work. It's not, it's not going to work. This is not God's design. They're not supposed to kick the Gentiles out. They're not, they're not supposed to create systems of religion to make themselves perfect. And then the Old Testament, as they're standing here on this precipice, 400 years of silence. It's just... And generation after generation after generation. You should read. You should sometime go online and, and read. Well, okay. I did this. Doesn't mean you would do this. I'm like a nerd about like history timelines. But like... You read the history of the intertestamental period, this 400 years, it is bloody. Killing, one guy killing another guy, kingdom taking over kingdom, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And everybody's still sitting there. What's happening? So it's not going to work. This 400 years of silence, there's no ending to Chronicles, there's just waiting. And this time, the religious system of Second Temple Judaism. You can, you, that's what it was called officially. Second Temple. So this is, Solomon's Temple was the first. It was destroyed, 586, by the Babylonians. Then this new temple was created. It's called the Second Temple. Inside of this 400 years is when the Jewish religion really started to transform and when you, read, when you get to the New Testament, you start reading about Pharisees. Remember how mean they were to people? How strict they were? Those didn't exist in the Old Testament. They just all of a sudden show up in the New Testament. We have 400 years of a religious system developing. A hierarchy of leaders, corrupt high priests, crazy sacrificial system. You, you have to be pure. 613, the, the Old Testament laws are created. 613 laws. They're saying, yeah, you're going to follow all of them if you're going to be accepted. And you're seeing this picture of this in the New Testament now of what took place over that 400 years. And so in this time, this, this Second Temple Judaism was created, and it's cruel. And it lasts until 70 
A.D. What do you know what happens in 70 A.D.? The temple is destroyed by Titus, actually. A, gov- a, a ruler, uh, I mean a general of the Romans, comes in, pff, destroys this temple, 70 A.D., it's never been rebuilt. So we stand now, no temple in Israel. All right, so Nehemiah wants to prepare for the Messiah, and there are three areas, and we get to chapter 13, we see three specific areas, three movements of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah rebuilds, he does all this reform, all this stuff, and he returns to Babylon and stays there for a while. When he comes back, he finds Israel in a state of disrepair. Just crazy. And there are these three movements where we see Nehemiah going nuts. All right. So um, first thing is he notices that the temple is neglected. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 14, there's this section where he talks about the temple um, being neglected. And he wants to cleanse the temple and reform the worship of Israel. And here's the crazy thing. Remember Tobiah? the guy that's standing out giving him criticism about building the walls. Well, Tobiah now has a condo in the temple. He's living in there. They took all the worship implements and threw them out and set him up a place to live downtown Israel, uh, Jerusalem inside the temple. And, and Nehemiah's going, wait, what? What is Tobiah you know, Tobiah, was, he's the brother-in-law of somebody who was high up in the temple and he gets a place to live. Tobiah is always where the action is. He's always on the side of the guy with power and money. Every time you see him rise throughout the Old Testament, he's, with the, he's weaseled, weaseled his way into something of power. And so here he is sleeping in the temple. And so Nehemiah is like, man, this is crazy. I left town for three or four years, and this is what happens. So he sees the temple neglected. The second thing that he sees is the Sabbath dishonored. So in chapter 13, verses 15 through 22, he's seeing also that the Sabbath is being dishonored. And he's concerned, if you don't obey the Sabbath, how are you ever going to know God? So he goes crazy, and this is when he pulls out somebody's hair and you know just starts yelling at people, wailing on people. I mean, this guy's going like postal in the temple, you know? He's going crazy. Then he notices that the people are defiled. So you have this section of confrontation against all of this, but the people are involved too because they're doing business on the Sabbath inside the walls of Jerusalem with the nations, and they're still intermarrying, and all that stuff's coming back together, and he's going, wait a second, we went through all this stuff, and so the people are back in the land, Jerusalem's rebuilt, the temple's there, but Israel's spiritual state is unchanged, just like Malachi was preaching this whole time. You're not changed, exile didn't change you. But then you have this weird section at the end of Nehemiah, really strange. Nehemiah all of a sudden starts talking to God. Hey, you remember me? I built these walls. I was the one that sanctified this temple. I was the one, remember me, God? You know, look what they're doing. Forget about them and basically honor me, Lord. And it's disturbing. It's really, and it, 
it gets really concentrated at the end of chapter 13. Remember when he's like pointing out other people's sin and then saying to God, but remember me. Hey, don't forget what I did for you, God. And this is why it disturbs me. And this is why we do this time of prayer of just preparing our hearts for this because I, I don't want you to see my heart as standing up here and pointing fingers, okay, because they all need to be, all right, I'm just going to point them all at me, all right. We get so full of pride about our spiritual accomplishments. Remember me, God? Remember that time I was a missionary? Yeah. I'm good. I did that. Check the box. Remember me, God? Remember when I did that thing for you? Remember, remember me, God? I got up early and prayed. But those, uh, that, that other sister, she didn't. She didn't get up as early as me. I still remember I was in high school and I was trying to figure out this whole thing about God. And I was trying to really work hard, literally, to do good and to be like, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to finally get on fire for God and do the right thing. So I remember asking, this was at a time when Henry Blackaby was really popular and experiencing God study was real big. And so I remember asking for an experiencing God study Bible. My parents got me an experiencing God study Bible. I was happy. I was like, yes, I'm going to actually read the Bible now. I never read it, by the way. But I had it. It was big, hardback Bible. I carried it around. But I remember, still remember this girl in the youth group where I was going. I walk in with my brand new, clean edged experiencing God study Bible and she looks at it, she goes oh I see you got an experiencing God study Bible I was like yeah she's like I got one too and she pulls hers out and it's covered in duct tape and all that but I actually read mine <laughs> now this is how we go about life we compare ourselves and we're so proud of our accomplishments and and so, like, man, God, remember me at this. Remember me in that. Help me understand that how I can be better, do things greater, and all that kind of stuff. And you know what that, that's called? That's called wretched. That's called wretchedness. I'll tell you about wretched. This morning, I walked into this building. And down that hallway down there, there was a smell. And I, as the closer I got to the end, where the bathrooms are, the worse it got. And I, now this is the women's bathroom, so I was knocking on the door, creaked the door open. Anybody in here? Open it up, and I want to tell you something. I retched. Somebody had put a diaper in there like five years ago. I'm telling you, I don't know how this little, wonderful, cute, cuddly babies can produce something so absurdly just wretched. So I, and then, then, the, then 
the trash bags locked into the trash can. So I'm like pulling and tugging and the, the wind is wafting in my face. Finally, I could not, I mean, literally, I could not get, it's one of those stretchy kind of bags, you know, it's like just, just getting bigger. Finally, I just pull my pocket knife out and just slice that thing out of there and go running out. And about that same time, Lou is walking down the hall and I'm like carrying this bag like, oh my gosh, I'm, ga- I'm literally gagging. Going out the door, I find the dumpster, throw it in. I like have to have a period of recovery. It, and you know what? That is a perfect picture of our sin. Yet, there is hope. You see, Nehemiah gets proud and he loses sight of God's work and he creates out of this, in this 400 years of silence, this new legalism is created and these developments happen. The new legalism is when people begin to think they've attained this holiness. And even to the point where they get, I'm greater. I actually can, I'm greater than God. I'm holy. And church, we need to guard against this. We need to guard against that when we feel that we're a church that does better. We're the church that knows how to engage people. Waypoint Church. And it's true, yet it can create some pride in us that we lose sight of God and we focus on us. And it, then, inside of this new creation of religion, family bloodlines becoming more important than the blood of the covenant. Oh, wait. It's, it's us. In, in churches, all the time, folks, churches do this. They get so inwardly focused that they lose sight the blood of Jesus Christ, which is for all nations. It's about who's a part of us. And we lose sight of the mission. And maybe at Waypoint, it's great, we're diverse, so it maybe is not necessarily about our reach to the nations, but maybe it's about us becoming so inwardly focused on Waypoint people. We lose sight of a lost and dying world around us. We lose sight of billions, literally, billions of people who don't have access to the name of Jesus. And oftentimes they live next door. And then the third thing is we begin to neglect covenantal faithfulness in worship. We have to guard against this. We have to always hold out the gospel of grace in Christ alone. In faith in Christ alone is where our hope's found. And the worship of God become, has to be primary. Forgiveness and reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Even the children at this point lost fluency in Scripture because of language change. 
We need to raise generations to know the gospel. We need to re- continue recovering. The Reformation didn't just happen 500 years ago, and man, it's good now. Reformation constantly needs to happen in my own heart and within the church. Constantly holding out the gospel of grace. Constantly putting forth the blood of Jesus Christ. Because I want to tell you, there are so many times when churches lose sight of this. Our theology always has to be guarded against. Our legalism always has to be guarded against. The mission of Christ always has to be guarded And where does this come from? Where's the fuel from this? Well, it comes from Jesus. The ultimate post-exilic Nehemiah. Last week, Pastor Lawrence was talking about Nehemiah was the Savior of a little s and that Jesus is the Savior of the big s. The hope that's waiting at the end of Chronicles is that Jesus came. And we know about that now. It's that Jesus arrived on the scene and showed us. Nehemiah talks about in the neglected temple, Jesus is the temple. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, Jesus goes into the temple. He's cleansing the temple. We see it happening again. Business and corruption taking place inside the temple. He takes charge and corrects this. But then he ultimately says... Tear this temple down and in three days I will rise it up again. Because the implements of worship and the temple was always a shadow of the ultimate who is Jesus. Those candlesticks and that incense and those implements inside the Holy of Holies are all a shadow of the glowing ultimate God-glorifying presence of Jesus, the priest, king, Messiah, who showed up and died as the sacrifice for His people. Jesus says, I am the meeting place between God and wretched sinners. I am the one who purifies. I'm the one who cleanses you. I'm the one who establishes worship in spirit and truth. I'm the one that gives you a new heart. I'm the one that fills that heart with the spirit of me to enable the people to truly see him as God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is talking to this church in Ephesus and he says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We also, the church, are the new temple. And this book of Ephesians is written to Gentiles. I am a Gentile. And at some point, someone came with the gospel message to my tribe. Wherever my people were originally from. Wherever my bloodline is from. Someone held out the gospel of Jesus Christ to a Gentile nation. And my ancestors heard, and they continued to perpetuate it down through the generations. But then Jesus, like Nehemiah, also saw a people defiled. 
So therefore, He fills us. Like Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36 says, He gives us a new heart. He replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And He fills us. Israel's growth and worship as a nation was important. So let's not neglect the church of God who already know God. However, the nations are brought in because they don't know. And they need to be spared from the coming wrath of God. Jesus, like Nehemiah III, also saw the Sabbath dishonored. But Hebrews chapter 4, oh my goodness, go home today and read Hebrews chapter 4 because Jesus says you're not going to find Sabbath rest unless you rest in Me. You're not going to find hope unless you place it in Me. And He says, I am the Sabbath for the people. I was made for you to find your rest. And when we ultimately place our rest and our lives in Him and lay it there. I call this hammock theology. You guys like the hammocks? I love a nice warm day in a hammock. Hammock theology says lay down on Jesus and He will support you and just hold you in His grace and His mercy because that is where you find hope and rest forever. So Jesus restores the temple in Himself. Jesus cleanses the people through His blood. And Jesus gives us the Sabbath, which is Him, to rest in. And so then, at the end of the Bible, at the end of the New Testament, in Revelation, we see these themes coming back. Where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language are gathered before the throne the bride of Christ, which is this, called the city of God, sees the temple, which is Jesus, and worships. And it all comes together. What Chronicles is talking about, what Malachi was preaching about, what Zechariah was saying, what Haggai was saying, what Ezra and Nehemiah were trying to put together, ultimately found its fulfillment in Jesus. And then we get to Revelation and we see Him again. Jesus, when He came, they called it His Advent. The word Advent means coming. Jesus came. And He's coming back. He is coming back. We are going to have a second Advent. And as we began to walk in this season in preparation for Christmas, we are starting what's called Advent. Because we as the church, the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the Spirit, are waiting. We're waiting on Jesus. He's coming back. He's going to show us Himself again. And as we wait... He says, I don't want you to just sit and wait. In 1 Thessalonians, you have these people sitting on the roof, like waiting for Jesus. They must have just read Chronicles. Climb up on the roof. All right. He's not, no, he says, don't do that. I've given you a commission. 
as you are going about your life, make disciples of all nations. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Advent, John Piper says this, Advent is a season for thinking about the mission of God to seek and to save lost people from the wrath to come. It's a season for cherishing and worshiping this characteristic of God. That He is a searching and saving God. That He is a God on a mission. That He is not aloof or passive or indecisive. He is never in the maintenance mode, coasting or drifting. He is sending, pursuing, searching, saving. And that's the meaning of Advent. And that's the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus' ongoing Advent into more and more people of the world. And He does that through His church. His church that won't compromise the Gospel. His church that won't turn themselves inward, but always looking out. His church that's focused on the nations. John 20, 21, As the Father has sent Jesus, He says, So I am sending you. Piper says this, Jesus came into the world at the first advent. And every advent since is a reminder of His continual coming or advent into more and more lives. And that advent is in fact our advent. Our coming. Our moving into the lives of those around us and into the peoples of the world. And that's the book of Nehemiah. So the worship team is going to come up here. And I just wanted us to take a moment to reflect on this. We have an amazing Savior. We have a risen Lord. And so, take a moment. Just absorb that. I mean, that is everything that the Old Testament is pointing toward, we have gotten a chance to experience in Christ. So I want us to have this time of, of um, Adam's going to just be playing in the background. I just want us to have a, just a few seconds where we just focus on that. Remember that. The Bible talks about, First Peter talks about being reminded of this. So take a moment and remember. So to your, you and God, just take a moment to remember.
Lord, I pray that you will help us, that you will drive this truth into our hearts. Show us your grace and mercy as your church worships you. This morning, in Jesus' name, amen.